from all over Israel. They were coming. Mass numbers of people. And as they were coming, they were talking about him. And they were speculating. And they were discussing the rumors that they'd heard. And as they came, all of them were asking one question. Is he the one? Is he the one? I'm going to suggest to you that they, and sadly many of us, should have been asking themselves a different question. Which one is he? Because if they'd known the answer to the latter question, they would have known the answer to the former. If you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to the book of John. So John is the fourth historical biography. We call them the Gospels. The story, the good news of Jesus, the life of Jesus. John chapter 12 And we're going to read a story that occurs in all four of these historical biographies recording the life of Christ. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 through 19. And it says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so it's the day after Shabbat. And Shabbat starts Friday night as the sun is going down. And it goes for the next 24 hours until sun goes down on Saturday night. And now it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And it's the beginning of of the Passover celebration. And people are streaming en masse to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going up to the elevated city of Jerusalem. And it's in this context and in this setting that we're going to talk about what true worship really is. Because like I said, they were all asking the question. And we see this emanating from the text. Is he the one. And they should have been asking, which one is he? Because then they would have known the answer to the question they kept asking, is he the one? And they would have known that he was, and in fact, is the one. 
And I have a feeling that a number of us are still confused about that. At Passover time, for the Jews, mass numbers of people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. The Passover was, in fact, what we're going to be looking at after Easter as we move to a part of the Old Testament where we read the story and discover the story of God delivering the children of Israel out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And the Bible tells us over and over again to remember the deliverance and the activity of God. And so different historians peg the numbers at different amounts, but at minimum they would suggest hundreds of thousands of people. The the Jewish non-Christian historian Josephus, who had his work just after the time of Jesus, He suggested well in excess of 2 million people came to Jerusalem at Passover time. So there's massive crowds of people in the city. And Jesus is heading there as well. But his leadership team, as he's coming down from the Galilee, keep saying to him over and over again, don't go. We don't think we should go. We think they're going to try and kill you. I've got a really bad feeling about this. But Jesus still went. And it's important to know this. He went with his eyes fully open. He knew in intimate detail what was coming. And you know, sometimes we'll say something like this in our life. You know, it's a good thing I didn't know before I started this project all the difficulties I was going to be going through because if I had known all the stuff I was going to end up having to go through on this journey, I would never have started. But Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. In fact, If you read these biographies of his life over and over again, he references the fact he's going to die. He was thoroughly familiar with all the hundreds of prophecies written about his life in the Older Testament. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the nature of what his death was going to be. They were writing about prophetically 700 years before it was even invented in human history, they were writing prophetically about the kind of death he would have. In fact, in the immediate context of this, in verse 7, he references his death again. He knew, but he still came. He knew, but he still came. And we can never thank him enough for that. But we need to try as hard as we can to do that. But we can never thank him enough. Because that action, that singular action of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has changed your life if you've allowed him to change your life like nothing else ever will. And so people all over, Jeru- all over Israel rather, have heard about him. They've heard about the miracles, the crowd that was there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They've been telling everyone about what these eyewitness accounts that they saw. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard the rumors about his teaching ability. This guy can teach with an authority like is unprecedented. 
When the religious leaders, who all had genius-level IQs, came and tried to take him out intellectually, he would put them in their place every time, and they'd walk away with nothing to say with their mouth hanging open. And everybody knew there's something about Jesus. So they were all whispering or talking openly at night around the fire as they're making the journey. Maybe, just maybe, he is the one. But they're a little confused at the same time. Because he doesn't seem to be putting himself forward like they had always been taught to expect of the political Messiah King that they'd been told to expect. The Messiah they had been envisioning, that they'd been coached about by the religious leaders, was a Messiah that would be out there, a political leader, someone who will lead us in war against whoever is oppressing us in history. Because if you know their history, it's a whole series of different people groups oppressing them. And whenever this Messiah comes, they'd been taught, whenever it is in history, he will lead us to a place of prominence on the world stage. And so John says two times in the passage, a great crowd of people, and we don't know how many, surely tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people go out to greet him, and they're hoping to draw him out. They're thinking, he's not behaving like we want him to. And so they carry palm branches, which are still to this day in abundance in that area. They carry palm branches out and they meet him as he's coming in. And this is deeply symbolic, the palm branches. It's conveying a message. The palm branches for them were an emblem of victory, of military triumph. And the tone of their language tells us they expected him to be the political Messiah King. It says in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Hosanna in the Older Testament means save, I pray. But it's morphed over time in the intertestamental period. There's 400 years between the Older and the Newer Testament. And during that time, the meaning of it has morphed a little bit, and it's become more in the Newer Testament era, a a, a phrase of praise. And they're saying, and calling him out to be the king of Israel, because they are deeply tired and resentful of the shackles of Rome. And they believed he would lead him out. They were hoping he would lead them out out of the shackles of Rome. And so they are praising him. But for many of them, the motivation is to draw him out politically. Because they were hoping that he would be and he would do what they'd always wanted him to do. And I think probably for a number of them, their praise was quite sincere. But for many of them, it was based on wrong information and wrong motives. And we can be like that, can't we? At least I know I can. 
And we become very enthusiastic and we have the right symbols and we have the pulpit and we are holding the Bible and we're singing this liturgy and we're, we're saying all the right words. And we can do all those things and still be way off base in our worship. Because we've never really come to grips with the answer, which one is he? And we can say all the right words but we've never really come to grips with the question, which one is he? And so that may or may not be deliberate. And so as you read the text, there's, I think there's probably a certain level of sincerity with a number of them, but for many of them, it's limited at best because he's arrested just four days later. How many of them showed up to defend him and stand with him there. Not one of them. Someone has said that devotion based on curiosity or popularity quickly fades. Devotion based on popularity or curiosity quickly fades. I would argue that many people in the church need to hear that today. When it became apparent to them that Jesus did not intend to dance to the tune they wanted to play, and it seemed like he couldn't give them what they wanted, they immediately discard him. Now we know some of them, especially the disciples, it was just because they didn't really get it. It says in verse 16, they only understood the full implications of all of the prophetic fulfillment of his life, the hundreds of prophecies that had been fulfilled, they only understood this stuff post-resurrection and post-glorification. He's risen from the dead, 40 days goes by, and he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. So they only understood it after the fact. And, and so this really asks a pretty deep-seated question, and the question is, what's our excuse? So the crowds want this political Messiah that will lead them in a holy war against the Romans. But Jesus, as we sang about this morning in a couple of those songs, has come as the Lamb of God. He has come as the Prince of Peace. It says in the book of Mark that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for the many as a ransom for you. So like I've been referencing, this passage is rich in symbolism, and he enters the city on a donkey, which is in fulfillment of one of the prophecies written about him by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9, that he'll come into town as a king, but on a colt. And the crowd, which was educated in this stuff, chose to ignore this. They would know. It's, and, and they're just, everywhere you go there, even to this day, there's just symbolism there everywhere and how they build their buildings and everything. And for him to ride in on a donkey's colt, this does not line up with the idea that he's a warrior political king, a priest 
or a merchant rolled on a donkey, an army commander rode on a white stallion. And so the crowds ignore this very obvious sign. And so we tend to ignore the messages God sends to us as well. Because we want him to do what we want him to do. Now the palm branches are very accurate, except they totally misunderstood the significance of them. They were really signifying spiritual victory. And there's people in our world that will use the same language, biblical language, but it means very opposite things. You just take the Mormons. Many people, they're nice people, and, and I think quite sincere, many of them, but they will take terms and phrases from Scripture, and they mean exactly the opposite of what Scripture is actually saying. And so the palm branches are very accurate, but they signify spiritual victory, which is eternal in nature, rather than a military victory, which only lasts until someone tougher than you comes along. So a number of them would have come seeking faith, seeking relationship with God the Father, but many of them were just there for the show. We see that in verse 17. I want to be entertained. I want to see a miracle. Nothing wrong with miracles. It's why we want to see them. God's still in the business of doing miracles. So for a a number of them, I'm going to suggest their motivation in doing what they did was, what's in it for me? And I think sometimes we come to church that way as well. And the worship experience is very shallow and in fact evaporates if we worship for the wrong reasons and with wrong motives. And so I think it's a great question to ask ourselves, how has God led me to this point in life? Are, are, there, are there assumptions that I have about him and, and life that I need to be willing to put aside so I can hear his clear message to me. What are the messages he's trying to send that perhaps I've been ignoring? Like, I was just chatting with Lawrence before church. We were talking about this at the back, and I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, these guys missed it so bad, so many of them. Am I missing stuff? I better listen carefully to what God would have for me. I'm no better than them. So I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the right reasons, the right motives, the right attitudes when it comes to worship. Because true worship, biblical worship, has a recognizing factor. Everybody appreciates being appreciated. Old story. I probably told you this story like 100 years ago. One day after church, this lady comes up to the preacher and says, that's the best message I've ever heard you give. Well, the preacher was pretty overwhelmed with this because he wasn't used to being appreciated, so he kind of choked up and sputtered and finally spit out, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And she said, it wasn't that good. 
Isn't it great when someone comes up to you and sincerely appreciates you for who you are or what you've done? I think everybody appreciates being appreciated. I wonder if God appreciates being appreciated. I think he does. And of course, he fully deserves it. Why do we come to church? Austin talked about community. That's a very important part of it. It really is. We're not meant to do the Christian walk alone. We're meant to do it in, you know, with support and, and sort of that interlocking support we can give to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But why do we pursue relationship with Christ? And this is a hardcore question. Am I here to try and shape God into what I want him to be? which is what many of them in this text were trying to do. And I think a number of us try to do as well. Or will I accept his agenda? Will I submit to his word? Even if it runs contrary to how I was raised or, or how I'm living my life right now, even if I don't understand it, and this is very hard for us to grasp, and with a Western mindset. We think if I can't understand it, it can't be true. So much of this passage is about sacrifice, and we want it easy. Will I seek his kingdom and his righteousness? This is a, a fundamental question upon which true worship rests. We don't recognize him for who he really is, and don't recognize him properly. Haven't got the recognizing factor. There's no true worship. It also has this um, deep refreshing factor, if I can put it that way. There's this, this refreshing factor about worship because it's so different than virtually every other experience we can be part of in our world. Now this one, what I'm about to say, this one's going to cut a little close to the bone, okay? How many times do we come across people who say, I didn't like church today. Someone wumps up the courage to say why, and they will typically, prototypically say, because I didn't get anything out of it. I would suggest this is exactly the problem with the people in this text. Your primary focus in following Jesus is what's in it for me. And they bolt at the first sign that they're not getting what they want. And this is the primary focus of most experiences in our world today. I'm not saying all, but most. Just listen to the rhetoric that you get bombarded with every day. It's all about what they're going to do for you. And true worship is the exact opposite of that. This is why it's so utterly refreshing, because in true worship we get into giving rather than getting into getting. We get into giving to the one who really deserves it. And there's, very, there's precious few places in the world where you can ex just have such a pure experience like that. But let me in on, I'll let you in on a little secret. If you come to a worship experience, whether that's just 
you and God alone on Monday morning or whatever, or you with your family as you're opening God's word together and you're worshiping that way, or you're in your small group, or you're in the public services here on the weekend. What is the attitude I have as I go into those things? Whatever they are, am I going in with this attitude I'm going to get into giving? So whether I'm in my small group and I'm praying over Zoom or I'm praying in person or whatever with that person in my small group or I'm opening the Bible up with my kid or my grandkid and we're talking about it or I'm welcoming that new person in the lobby that looks kind of lost and looks kind of nervous or I'm giving of the offering which is an incredible opportunity to worship or I'm participating in the singing or I'm listening to the message in all of those elements Our focus is, am I going to surrender each of those elements to God? Am I going to get into giving rather than getting into getting? Am I going to focus on ascribing worth to him? Because it's all about him. And when we do this, here's the little secret. We end up getting all that we need. My friend Garth Lino puts it this way. We will be satisfied with Christ. That's a profound statement. We will be satisfied in Christ. This is what Matthew says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. And if we leave saying, I didn't get anything today, we will be right. Just like the crowds that threw palm branches at Jesus' feet, they left with nothing. Is he the one? Actually, I think it's best to start with the question, which one is he? Because when we know the answer to the latter, we will know the answer to the former.